doing right now. If you guys have uh, started school already, you know something about this. If you can remember going to college at this time of year, you can remember something about this. How many guys remember orientation? You remember that? Yeah. Um, orientation, you know, I, I, you've never thought through orientation, right? You just went and you just thought it was, a, it was a waste of time and it didn't count. And why are we doing this? But orientation has a great thought behind it. Just think about this. Whether you're a school or a class, you are going to gather a bunch of people into the same location who are coming from all kinds of different ideas, backgrounds, expectations, and you're going to orient them all around one thing so that they can all participate in this one thing. Well, if you're going to accomplish anything with a large group of people, that's, that's kind of a needed element. So I thought, hey, you know what? We, we don't ever do that. Right? We don't ever do church orientation. Right? We, just, we just do. We just keep doing and keep going. And we add new people and some folks come in and some people try to understand, well, why do we do this and what's behind that? Hey, guys, start that red little clock for me back there, will you? Um, so this morning, we're going to go back to school this morning. I was going to borrow one of my boys' bow ties and dress up like a professor so I could really make you feel at home. But I do have a chalkboard that's my chalkboard right there. So this morning, welcome to Fellowship 101 Orientation. Glad you guys could make the class this morning. So if this was Fellowship 101 and I was doing the orientation this morning, I'd probably be curious as to why are you taking this class? Y'all remember that? You know, the professor, why are you taking this class? I would think some of you are just taking the class uh, to escape the fires of hell, right? That's what you took this class in order to avoid the heat of that. Or uh, you just know some friends or family who are here. They're attending, so you're attending kind of a thing. But, but here's the reality for most of us. Most of us are taking this class because we, we actually failed the human righteousness course. That's right. Uh, we all failed that one, so we ended up in, in uh, remedial humanity 101, right? That's what this is. So you're in the remedial humanity class and fellowship 101 is part of that existence. So let me just read a little bit of the course outline here to you. And here's some of the thoughts we want to realize first, some, some really bad news, really bad news here. The tests in this class are impossible and the amount of work to be done is endless. If you are here determined with all your might to pass this class, then you are in for the most exhausting, never-ending, never-feeling-adequate experience of your life. Welcome to Fellowship 101. Now, here's the good news about the class. This is the remedial humanity course. So it's conducted a little differently. There is a prerequisite. Everybody here, you can only be in this class if you have accomplished the prerequisite, and that is you are only allowed to take this course once you realize that you have fallen short as a human being, basically, you're a failure, right? So if you've signed up for the course today, uh, the only way you're allowed to take the course is if you embrace the thought that you are a failure and you're signing up to take a course with a bunch of other failures. All right, is anybody, everybody on board with that? Anybody got any issues with that? Anybody here today still trying to prove that they really are the ultimate human being? Is there anybody, we got anybody like that? I need there's another class available somewhere for you. Uh, still trying to leave an impression on everybody that you really are a straight A dad or a straight A Christian or a straight A businessman. You're just an impressive person, right? I mean, is that what's occupying your day? Because this is not the class for you. This is a class for failures. Now, there is something unique about this class. None of your coursework counts toward your final grade. I like that, huh? Now, that's an interesting deal, right? You go there and you hear, what? Say that again? That's right. None of your coursework counts towards your final grade. Not a bit of it. Not, not one second of it counts toward your final grade. Now, in, in remedial humanity, uh, there, you actually get graded through a form of cheating. I'm sorry. That's kind of what it is. It's cheating. Uh, someone else will take all of your tests and then he will transfer his grade into your grade book. Is everybody on board with this? You okay with that? That sounds all right, doesn't it? 
right, that's, that's what remedial humanity, all of us together here, learning how to do fellowship in this bigger course that you can get a degree in. That's, you know, the body of Christ, and hopefully you'll get your doctorate in that as you go on. But this is Fellowship 101. Uh, my role in this uh, would be, I guess, to play the, the part of the, the professor here, but better term here is pastor. So we use the term pastor rather than professor. Uh, covers a little bit more ground. I'm not just here to impart information to you, right? As a pastor, my intention in this class would be for you to experience the good of the information. There's a big difference, right? I don't just want to get to the end of the textbook. Don't just want to give out all the material. Don't just want you to regurgitate it back. I want you to experience the good of all that we are learning. I would want your life to be deeply affected. And more than that, there is a chancellor of the university that I want him to be pleased more than anything else. What we do in this class is going to be about him being pleased and you being affected. So that's, that's a quick thought of the class. Let's, let's look at the class syllabus for a moment. Remember the syllabus? It tells you your materials, what you're going to need, a little bit about the schedule. All right, here, here would be the class syllabus. You will, you will need a Bible. You will not only need a Bible, you will need to regularly read that Bible. Uh, the existence of the class will come from the Bible's material. You will need to study the Bible backwards and forwards. You will need to know the Bible well. By the way, I will be nagging you about your Bible reading throughout the course. You will need a prayer life. You will need a unique exchange of communication and communing with the living God. And listen, that's very different than some of the other things in the course. It's, it's personal. It's impacting. It involves a genuine experienced exchange where you are receiving something from God and you are giving something back to God that's very meaningful to you. So you will need a prayer life. You will need to experience and participate in worship. Okay, worship is the extreme valuing of God above everything else and above everyone else in your life. If that does not get achieved, then everything about this course has failed. If there's anything that we're after in this course, it is about you seeing a bigger God, a greater God, a more worthy God, an incredibly loving God, an all-sufficient God, a God that you would find it worth trading everything else and everybody else to have him. And if that doesn't happen, then we've, this course has failed. Serving, you will need to serve your classmates throughout the duration of this course. Uh, it will be tempting not to do this. This is, this is sort of like that come in the class part. You know, we're going to take role. Do we have to be there? Can I get away with taking the course without actually coming to the course? Well, there's always a temptation in Fellowship 101 to avoid serving one another. We love getting information more than we love caring for the messiness of one another's lives. People are messy. People are difficult. Serving them. Listen, if, if you don't serve one another, it's, it's another guarantee that we're just, not, we're just not getting the material. There's no desire to be involved with each other in a way that is having an effect and an impact and giving of ourselves into somebody else's need besides our own. All right, well, then we're, we're missing the point as a class gathered together. Uh, you will need evangelism. Evangelism is the giving away of what you're learning. If you are learning something that is revolutionary, that impacts your life deeply, that offers you the ultimate in satisfaction, that answers the troubles that have existed in your life all these years, and that puts you on an eternal collision course with life in abundance in heaven rather than the judgment that you would have faced, and nothing in you wants to tell that to anyone else, Something is severely wrong. Please check my office hours. We need to meet. You are not getting the material. All right. Last thing here is fellowship. 
And that's what we're going to hone in on and focus in on here. And we're going to focus in today. And actually, we're going to do that in the next few weeks. Fellowship, a, a unique connection of your life to the lives of others. Fellowship is, is it's, a, it's a large word. It comes from the idea of communion, which has to do with having things in common. So, right, there's many people in this room that you have, you have nothing in common with. You know, apart from the name tab, you don't, you don't even know who they are. But there needs to be some of the people in this room that you do have things in common with. You're doing life together. Your life is in common with theirs. They know something about you. They care about you, right? I like to think that, you know, we're just not communing together, but there's genuine friendship where we care for the good of somebody else because of God and because of them. Not, not just because of us. Listen, this is something we want to talk more deeply about in this course. We are a people who are learning to treat people like the world treats people. That I will treat you a certain way as long as I can figure out how that investment comes back to me. That's a very poor understanding of biblical fellowship and friendship. Biblical fellowship and friendship involves your good and God's glory, whether I feel like or can perceive any benefit coming my way. Right, that's, that's what we're after in this course about fellowship. Now, a little bit of a preparation for my role and the other professors' roles here in the course. Maybe even perhaps a little bit of a, a warning about my role in this course. Um, because it is my role to see you get the most out of this course. To see you ultimately experience the good of the course and not just have some information exchanged to you. Um, and so that the chancellor is greatly glorified and you are deeply satisfied. I will be encouraging you, correcting you, challenging you, exhorting you, strategizing with you, crying with you, pleading with you, begging you, and a number of other things as well. Now, my question to you, now, most professors don't do what I'm doing right now. This is, this is what most professors do when they come. You come into the class. This guy's a professor of botany or, you know, American literature. Let me pick something that some of you guys could give a rip about. This guy's a professor of American literature. As far as he's concerned, the world exists to understand American literature. So you come into his class and this guy is totally zealous over the top about something that you kind of don't really care about, but he sure expects you to care about it the way he cares about it by the time you get to the end of it. So he lays out all this information about the course. He tells you how demanding it's going to be. He sets up these rules. It makes it sound like it's the Nazis helped out with what he just put together because there's, there's no wiggle room here. If you miss one class, you fail. If you get less than a hundred, you fail. I mean, he just, he's, this guy is intense. He believes in what he's doing and he's all up in your business and he wants to make sure you are this ultimate student in whatever it is that he's teaching. Coaches are that way. Right, you're, you're watching, I'm a big fan of Remember the Titans. You ever see their orientation meeting where a coach walks into the, the, the gym and they're all standing in the line there and they all got this lighthearted, we're going to have fun, football's fun. And, and then this intense coach gets up in their face, fun, and he wants to adjust their mentality. This is not about fun. And, and I am the boss and you, you're nothing. And he just rips them down to shreds, right? And you guys had coaches like that. Like the, it took you a while. Eventually you sort of grew to have a unique category for them. You, you kind of loved them, but you hated them too, all at the same time, right? Coaches are that way. If you've been in the military, you're, you're drill sergeants that way, right? He's, I mean, he's intense. You show up. And it's his way or the highway. There's the door. This is the way it's going to be. All right, now listen. All that stuff gets presented by people relevant to things that are temporary and they are about man's glory for the most part. So you come into a church and... I don't, I don't know if the average church participant has the stomach 
for a, a pastor to be something different than just this kind of sweet, strokey on the back, your head person, everything's okay, everything's okay. This is a candy shop, welcome. Everything's okay. Um, How do people have a stomach to let the pastor be a little bit like a drill sergeant in your life? You got a stomach for that? Say, well, well, Keith, come on, man. A drill sergeant, a guy in the Marines. You know, this guy coming into this squad here, if he doesn't do his job, somebody loses their life, man. That dude needs to be that way. Right? That's how they justify what they're doing, right? When they teach you in the army. You got other people's lives in your hands. You do exactly what I say, the way I say it. You never question anything I'm telling you because you've got other people's lives in your hands. And now if I use that language, are you guys going where I'm going? Anybody here got anybody's lives, so to speak, in your hands? In the military, you've got temporary life in your hands. You have eternal life in your hands. So if, if you've come to this church and you don't have room for pastors to be more passionate, concerned, edgy, pushing, caring, involved, begging, pleading in your life than a professor you had for American literature or your drill sergeant or your high school football coach, then, then I don't know how to say this to you nicely. You are in the wrong place. I'm not going to say this because you're, your coach would say, if you don't like it, there's the door. Right, I had a coach who said, there's the door. Remember Jeff Smith? There's the door if you don't like it. All right, I'm not going to say that to you. I want you to stay. But please don't ask those who lead fellowship one-on-one to lack intensity and passion and interest and affection for what we're talking about here. This stuff matters for eternity. These are not small items in your life or in the lives of others around you. All right, here's our task. Our task here as as a church is to to build a place where fellowship takes place. So I do want to spend the next couple of weeks aiming us at fellowship, aiming us at the concept, what's involved? What's that going to look like for us? Where are we aiming? We added north, south, southeast. Where are we going here? All right, we'll do that. But I think it's very important for us this morning to study a little bit about where we are right now, not just where we're trying to go. I think it's important to understand something about where do we find ourselves right now as human beings, as individuals, as people who make up this church, when we go to aim at whatever this high call of biblical fellowship really is. So let me talk to us this morning. I think I've used this phrase. I may not have used this in here. I think I've used it sharing with others. As a pastor today, and and you would be in this realm as well, we, we are called to figure out how to get what's in us into others. All right, that's just true. You've never thought about your life that way. You should be. What God has deposited in you, he has always intended that it would be transferred to others. So God deposits the gospel in us with the intention that we would transfer it to others. God deposits his love in us with the intention that we would transfer it to others. So it's a little bit important that we understand what are these others that we're around? What are the people who make up the culture around us? What are we like in the midst of that culture? So let's look at a thought here. There's a helpful thought. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China in the late 1800s. And he recognized that for him to reach these people with the gospel, he needed to find out where they were and what their lives were already about. So he'd know how to do that. He he said, we have to deal with the people whose prejudices in favor of their own customs and habits are the growth of centuries and millenniums. These people have been living life a certain way, practicing certain things, believing certain things, have a certain manner of life and how they use their time, and their energy, how they dress. And he studied all that in a way that was different, quite honestly, than what most missionaries were doing. Most missionaries were showing up with a desire in China to impart European life to Chinese people. And Hudson Taylor showed up and said, we don't 
we need to impart the gospel. We don't need to impart Europeanism to them. So he grew his hair into a long ponytail. He wore Chinese clothing. The Europeans thought he was nuts. He moved away from the coast where all the design of the housing was European. He moved inland, lived in the sort of shanty lifestyle that was there in China at the time. And he became part of that. He identified, where are these people? How do they see life? How do they do life? And how can I get involved with them? Well, you know, if you and I are missionaries to a very different setting, we're missionaries to an American suburb. That's what we're around. There's ideas here. There's ways of life here. There's things that challenge us being called to relate to one another in a certain way. And so it needs to help us understand something about ourselves because we are, we are vulnerable. If you're a Christian living in the American suburbs, you are vulnerable to the same sets of diseases that run through the land. Right, so here's a very interesting verse. It's in Job chapter four. And I, I didn't, I, didn't, I want you guys to listen more than do anything else today. So if you want to write this down, go back and reference it, that'd be fine. Verse 17, Eliphaz brings some counsel to Job here. He talks about a vision that he's received from the spirit. In the vision was communicated to him, says, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants, he puts no trust. Says God toward his own servants. And his angels, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. You ever crush a moth? If you haven't, I mean, I'm not encouraging you to kill unnecessarily, but it's kind of a cool thing. I mean, just they, they powderize. You just grab a moth, they just kind of turn to powder, right? And that's what the description here. These, these guys get under the weight of life and they just powderize. Here, that's what we are. A bunch of guys who just fall apart. Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. How'd you like that for a bumper sticker? (laughs) Hi, I'm Keith. Between morning and evening, beaten to pieces. That's life. That's what life is like. And Job is describing that. They perish forever without any regarding. It's not their, is not their tent cord plucked up within them. They do not die and that without wisdom. Listen, there's a frailness to Humanity. There's a vulnerableness to our lives. And, and I'm sharing this because I, I want us to have an appreciation and accurate assessment. Somewhere over here is the pursuit of fellowship. Somewhere over here is a body of ideas about people being involved with one another. And somewhere over here, each of us live like moths crushed by life. Crushed by relationships. I can, tell, I, can I go ahead and cut some of you off? I'm going to describe relationships in a way that's going to make you go, I don't want to do that. I've already done that. Do you want me to tell you what happened last time I did that? Want me to tell you about being close to people? Want me to tell you about being disappointed? Well, we are vulnerable. There's a lot of ideas that are sitting inside of us right now that are going to go, I don't want to do that. I don't care if you can show it to me in the Bible. I don't want to do that. I don't know if I can do that. I don't even understand what you're talking about. Because our lives have been infected by all kinds of things. There's fragileness to us. There's brokenness in us. And and listen, I, I say that so, one, you can understand that we're aware of that. When we encourage you to do things here, we're aware of the humanity that you wear and walk around. Doesn't mean I'm not going to preach on this. Doesn't mean I'm not going to encourage you to go there. But I am aware that you do get crushed like a moth. You know why I'm aware of that? Because I'm one of you too. And I get crushed like a moth. And I get affected by things too. So you've got your stories. I've got mine. We've lived life. And we've been affected. I also share that from the standpoint of when we, when we go to get close to one another. Here's, you know, years of doing this. And we've been doing this for a while. Um... Some people just kind of have this, I don't know, you're, you're like a walking ruler. That's like what you are. You're, you're, everything just gets measured. You know, you walk in those that you measure it. You, you measure it. You measure it. And, I, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach on fellowship here, and you're going to turn into a fellowship ruler. It's just like you'll stiffen up, and there'll be little lines all down you. And you'll take all the ideas that I share over the next few weeks, and you will walk up besides people, and you will measure them. 
and you will measure this one, and you will measure that one. And some of you have mouths, and you're not just a ruler, you have a mouth. And so you begin to tell people how they fail to measure up to, all right, can all the rulers here with mouths, can you write down Job chapter 4, verse 17 to 21, can you appreciate the fact that the person you're about to go strangely adjust is like a moth that gets crushed by life. All day long, from morning until evening, they're beaten to pieces. They don't need you to beat them more. They need you to figure out how to encourage them, right? So I want to be careful. I'm going to share a lot today uh, to try and help us not do the wrong thing with this information and prepare us uh, for being able to fellowship together. But let me just clue us in. We're going to do a little bit of a sociology study here on simple thought. We are not the same people that we were 10 years ago. Just accept it. I'm going to try and convince you in just a moment, but we are not the same people that we were 10 years ago. Now we still think we are the same people that we were 10 years ago. Therefore we say things, commit to things and do things that we could do 10 years ago that we don't seem to be able to do now because we are not the same people that we were 10 years ago. Here's some changes in the Native American suburbanite. One, the pace and scope of life has changed in the last 10 years. The pace and the scope of life has changed, right? The pace that we live in affects the time that we have and the personal energy that we have to do whatever it is that we do. And we're doing life differently now. So your personal energy level and your time availability didn't change over the last 10 years. Maybe you got older and maybe it's diminished a little bit actually. But the pace of life around us is very different, right? The pace of life is, in some ways, it's a continuous pace. I've used this terminology from one of the books I'd read a couple years ago about CPA. What these electronic devices have done for our lives is create this sense of continuous, partial attention. Our minds are 24-7, or however we're awake in that time span, engaging information, and people and activity. It's like our, our motors always run and we don't ever turn it off and just let it sit. So we, we have issues. Here's an interesting thought from an article by Joel Stein. It's the me, me, me generation from Time Magazine. I'm gonna pull some thoughts from here in just a moment, but listen to what he says. He says millennials, and when he says millennials, he's talking about people born between uh, 1980 and 2000. So you're like teenagers on up into your mid thirties. But I gotta say this in reading this article, Uh, He's not just talking about millennials. He's talking about just about everybody, right? But let's just go with his words. Millennials are interacting all day, but almost entirely through a screen. You've seen them at bars sitting next to one another and texting. They might look calm, but they're deeply anxious about missing out on something better. 70% of them check their phones every hour, and many of them experience phantom pocket vibration syndrome. (laughs) All right, how many of you non-millennials say, yeah, I do that too. I got this sense that I think this thing just buzzed in my pocket. You pick it up. No, it didn't. It's just a phantom, phantom buzz, right? Uh, all right, so we have this continuous mode of activity and engagement going on. Listen, you're, you're burning up personal energy while you're doing that. You're using part of yourself up, right? Uh, the pace of life is instant. It used to be years ago, there was delay. All right, I can remember... If you wanted to contact somebody far away, you, you actually had to sit down and write a letter. And Lord knows you didn't have any postage. So there'd be two or three days before you'd finally get postage. Y'all remember when the supermarket started selling postage stamps? You think that was revolutionary? It's like, oh my gosh, my life just got so much easier. All right, well, you'd put the stamp on there. You'd mail it three to five days later. They would get it. They would take a few days to respond. Three to five days later, it would come back to you. So, I mean, you're, you're talking like a two-week period here of exchanging information before you'd expect anything to be moving. How many of you know that's not how we live today, right? There's, we're, I don't know. Our devices got like bad milk labels on them or something. We send an email out. I, I don't know what you're expecting back. Everybody's probably got a different expectation. But, you know, on 24 hours, you got 24 hours. And your device is going to explode. I need to hear something back from you. It's an email for goodness sake. 
If I wanted that slow of a response, I'd have mailed you a letter, right? So we send an email out 24 hours later. You've got to be back to me. If we send a text, how long? <laughs> Immediately, somebody says. Uh, all right, I'm, I'm more gracious than that. You've got about an hour, okay? <laughs> you've got an hour because I know that you're in a meeting, but you're not paying attention to the meeting anyway. You've been in your Facebook. You've been doing other stuff. So, so do my text. Interrupt your meeting for me. All right, so we expect everything to be instantaneous. All right, now, now once you expect that of others, guess what you know about them? They expect that of you. So you just got a text. And everything in you is trying to exercise self-control. But it's like you can't get on with life, you know. I've got to respond to that text. You know, your wife's talking to your kids are talking. You don't hear anything they're saying because you're in the back of your head. You're going, I've got to respond to that text. I've got to, I've got to respond to that text. Well, what if I don't feel like responding to that text? What if I don't feel like talking about what you wanted to talk about in that moment? You're not even here with me, man. Mind your own business. What if we just, uh, okay, but that's not how we are, right? So you're walking around every day feeling like I got to be, I got to be instant, man. I'm on all the time. Anybody who decides that they can't sleep at night and they're going to send me an email or a text at 1.32, what are you people doing at that time of morning anyway? Do I respond to that or do I wait till the morning? You know, it's like it goes off, wakes you up, and you feel like, oh, I've got to respond. How many guys have these noises near your nightstand? So when they go off at night, you have to look at them. What was that? You know, it was a Winn-Dixie coupon. Oh, shoot. You know, it's like, woke me up for that? All right, here's pace of life. Scope of life. Right, we're, we're Americans. Right, I rail on, on being an American sometimes. But, but we are what we are. We're Americans who live in the suburbs. That in and of itself, whether you've ever thought about this, is affecting how you do life. In order to live in a suburb, unlike living in the city, where you, you know, years ago, people lived in the city, they didn't own a vehicle. So they didn't have the expense of a vehicle, care of a vehicle. The limitations of not having the vehicle. Am I going to go drive out to Kenner? Well, no, I'd have to take the streetcar and then the bus, and I'm not, I'm not doing that. All right, so you just simplified your life by not owning a car. But if you live in the suburbs, you own a car. You own multiple cars, and you've got to pay for those cars. You've got maintenance. You've got insurance. But that car also complicates your life because it'll take you to the other side of town in 20 minutes. And so those people and that activity over there can be in your life like that. So you just added activity to the pace and scope of your life. You live in the American suburbs where things are expensive, so we're all trying to prepare our kids to live in a similar setting. So not, now there's higher education issues. So we have to try and figure out how we're going to pay for them to go to school. So there's more income that needs to get generated so that we can live in the land in which we live. So now you've got more households where there's, there's two incomes coming into the household, right? You just, you just busied up life a lot, right? You got demands at work from both mom and dad responsibilities. We live in a land where there's a great deal of divorce. So you have split households where both are having to work twice as much as having to be paid for. There's financial need. Now, do you understand the land we live in? It's, it's not the land of the Bible. It's not the land of Europe 300 years ago. It's, it's American suburbs. It's complicated. The scope has a lot to it. And it affects how you and I spend limited resources of our lives. Look at this second aspect that's changed. Social connections have changed drastically in the last 10 years. Again, technology has reworked the way in which we relate to people. Therefore, it's changed the volume of people activity that's in our lives. Give this thought again from Mr. Joel Steen here. He says, now that cell phones allow kids to socialize at every hour, They're living under the constant influence of their friends. Never before in history have people been able to grow up and reach age 23 so dominated by peers. Now, we grew up with warnings about peer pressure, you know, peer influence, peer pressure. And now you get to a place where things are different now. Never before in history have people been able to grow up, get to the age 23, and have so much peer influence. Right, have, you, have you thought about how that, I mean, if you're a teenager, early college student, have you thought about what that's doing for you? You're, you're spending thought, mental energy, and you're spending it in the arena of 
young relationships, difficult relationships, huge, you know, you turn into being a teenager, you're instantly into this comparison mode. Who am I? Who is that person? Are they better than me? Are they better looking than me? Are they funnier than I am? My ear's too big. You got all that stuff going on. And, you know, you used to have that little group at school. Remember, I had a group at school and I had a group in the neighborhood. When I was at home, it was a group in the neighborhood. When I was at school, it was a group at school. When I was there in the summer, I never knew those people. I only knew these people. It was just simplicity to life. Now you go home as a teenager and you take everybody in the universe with you. And they're right there on the screen and they're staring back at you. And they're with somebody else and you're comparing how they're doing and comparing what they're saying and who they're with and whether you were included or not. You realize how much mental, emotional energy you're spending 24-7 doing that? And, and then if, if you live, your teenager, you're, you're living parents, teenager lives in your house, you're being spent by that too. Because, you know, all of a sudden you, you don't have any idea why, but your, your child gets submarined by something and they look for two days like the cat just died and you have no idea why. And, and that affects you as a parent. You love your children. You want them to be doing well and thriving. They don't look like they're doing well. And you try to engage that and find out what's happening. And and what got imported was something that happened through technology. And so now you're involved as well. But I want want to just show you some places in your life where you're spending yourself that you may not be realizing. I'm spending myself in a bunch of places because life is not what it was 10 years ago. Midlifers. One of the things I'm excited for us to offer is a small group that's focused on the needs of midlifers. Midlifers today, technology is affecting, in one regard, technology is affecting the ability for your parents to live longer lives. Like no other generation before you, your parents are living longer lives, ex- extensively longer lives, but they're not healthier lives. They're being prolonged in their ability to live longer and they're needing longer care. And you as a midlifer are the person who will be providing that for them. So you're going to spend yourself in that category in a way that generations before you did not. Uniquely, you also have kids living in your home longer, right? The the child doesn't leave home until late twenties. Some of them are 30 ish and they're still living at home. So you're a midlifer and you still got that group of people, and you've got an aging group of people, you've got grandchildren involved. Because remember, it's expensive to live in America, so more than likely, your son or daughter who's married needs help caring for the grandchildren while they're at work. Guess who's going to be involved? You're going to be involved in that. So your life, if you're a midlifer, your life is extremely busy. It's got a lot pulling on you and, and pulling from you. All right, now listen, can you stay with me? I know I'm giving you a lot of information here, but can you stay with me? Because in a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask us all to come live over here in the land of fellowship. And all these realities are in our lives. And if you're not aware of them, you're just going to just be scratching your head as to why, why does that look so hard to do? Well, because there's a lot going on in our lives. There's a lot of people going on in our lives. All right, 10 years ago, you were, uh, you were with the one you're with. Now, I'm with hundreds of people in my pocket while I'm with you. And, and can somebody help me here? What, what happened? Where, where did the, you know, I don't know, Miss Manners or something must be dead and then she'd be rolling over in her grave. When did it become the normal thing to do to be more loyal to the people in your pocket than the people you're standing face to face with? Can somebody explain that one to me? Right, I mean, you're in a meeting, or you're having an exchange with somebody, you know, you guys have bumped into each other, you know, you haven't seen each other in years, whatever, or you're talking and device goes, can I have a minute with you? Excuse me. It was Winn-Dixie. <laughs> uh, but what is it about us that we've just got to be so loyal to those people? Let me put you on hold rather than putting them on hold. They don't even know. Maybe your phone's off. They don't know what you're doing. But the simplicity of, hey, who am I with? Well, I'm with whomever I'm with. Well, you're never just with whoever you're with anymore. You're with everybody you know. And if they text you, you got one hour. <laughs> right? You just feel like I have to, I got to cut this short. I got I to gotta return this. Right? That guy didn't make an appointment with you to send that. Why you got to do that? Right? Life is complicated. Used to be years ago, statistically, people 
averaged about 60 people in their life. 50, 75, you know, if you're living on the edges there. Right? These are the people that you had regular interaction with. So this is your family, your extended family, your, your co-workers, the people in your church, uh, maybe a neighbor or two. Right? So you collect them all together. You have some kind of social engagement with those folks over the period of weeks, about 60 people. Now, double, triple, quadruple that. You got people downloading their lives into your life that you're just you know, mindlessly checking up on and interacting with. So life has become super complicated. And then in the midst of that, we're going to call you everybody again and say, hey, hey guys, let's do, let's do friendship. Let's do biblical friendship. Uh, okay, this is, this is not 10 years ago. This is a challenging call to pull off. It's an interesting thought from Kevin DeYoung. He says, I don't know if making friends is harder than ever. In some ways, with travel and technology, it's easier than it used to be. But there are still a number of factors that mitigate against genuine friendship. We are extremely mobile, moving from place to place, rarely settling down in one spot for a long time. That's new for us as a culture in New Orleans. That's new. Uh, you know, this morning, the number of guys that are, are relocating and moving that we shared with you. And you guys will know that if you're paying attention, we're sharing that with you every three or four weeks. Somebody's relocating. Right? I'm, I'm not done a fresh look at the numbers, but I looked at one point over the last two years uh, with, you know, exporting the folks to the North Shore. Probably over 150 people in the last two years have relocated from our church. Years ago, nobody, nobody left New Orleans. We didn't know anything else existed, I think. All right. Uh, we, are, we are consumed by family life, pouring almost all our spare time into our children and what's left over into our spouse. Right? Our, our children live busier lives than ever, so it's a challenge for us to keep up. We are deceived by email and Facebook, imagining we have hundreds of spectacular relationships, when actually we have lots of well-wishers and acquaintances and few flesh and blood friends. With this last observation, we are entranced by one-way relationships, expending emotional energy. That's a good thing to hold on to, expending emotional energy as we bond with our favorite sitcom actor, sports star, or American Idol contestant. All right, can you just follow this? You are made up of only so much emotional and personal energy, right? When you got to follow the next tweet from that athlete, man, you're, you're spending part of it. You just are. When you got to tune in and figure out whether or not she made it to the next round in the singing contest, and you've talked to eight people about that, you've spent some energy on this, right? Now, remember where this is going to become a challenge is I'm going to ask you to involve yourself in more people. We're already involved with too many, right? I mean, I got to worry about the American Idol contest, for goodness sake. Now, some of this is real. So I'm going to mock as much as I can. Three, self-absorption has increased. All right, we've always had a problem with self-absorption. We're humans, right? And we're all in what class? The remedial humanity class. Thank you for participating. Self-absorption. I'm going to use this word that is used in this article narcissism. If you're not a philosophy person, you don't kind of know what that is. Narcissism is self-absorption. It's selfishness. It is self-importance. And this fellow here who has written this article for Time Magazine, Joel Stein, he says, the me, me, me generation. Millennials are lazy, entitled narcissists who still live with their parents. (laughs) Why they'll save us all. He spends two-thirds of the article burying all the millennials and one-third of the article saying, hey, but there's something for us to benefit from and learn from this generation. Now, what's interesting, two things. One, it is the largest generation in American history. This is the children of the baby boomers. There are a lot of baby boomers, and then they had children. There's a lot of millennials. I think what's interesting as well is he keeps focusing this on the millennials. I find much of what he had to say to be just true of people today. Not, not age-specific, um, but just people. Here, let me just give you some thoughts here, food for thinking. He says, the Industrial Revolution made individuals far more powerful. They could move to a city, start a business, read and form organizations. The Information Revolution has further empowered individuals by 
handing them the technology to compete against huge organizations, hackers versus corporations, bloggers versus newspapers, YouTube directors versus studios, app makers versus entire industries. Millennials don't need us. They don't need the establishment. They don't need the people who came before them. They have very much an exploratory, individualistic mindset that says, I want to do it, I'll do it. I don't need you to participate with me. I'll post it on the web. I'll create my own audience. In the U.S., millennials are the children of baby boomers who are also known as the me generation, who then produce the me, me, me generation, whose selfishness technology has only exacerbated. They have, this millennial group has less civic engagement and lower political participation than any previous group. They, they just don't, they don't feel the same way about people as previous generations. They don't need people in their world the same way previous generations did. I, quite honestly, I find that's true no matter how old you are, unless you're maybe, I don't know, 60 or over. I think you're escaping some of this. He goes on and says, they got this way. Now, this is interesting. This is an interesting, this is Time Magazine, right? This is not the Christian Journal. Time Magazine is about to say this. And I hope it, un, it unbolts anybody here who's a devotee to psychological analysis and how the world is the way it is and how to fix it. I hope this unbolts you because now psychological rescue is being reexamined. Hmm. Maybe our solution wasn't a solution after all. Listen to what he says. They got this way partly because in the 1970s, people wanted to improve kids' chances of success by instilling self-esteem. Turns out self-esteem is great for getting a job or hooking up at a bar, but not so great for keeping a job or for a relationship. The problem is that when people tried to boost self-esteem, now you'd have thought everybody would have got this one, they accidentally boost narcissism instead. Right? When you try to pump up self-esteem, guess what goes with it? Self-absorption, self-importance, self-centeredness. Didn't everybody see that coming? I'm just curious. All that self-esteem leads them to be disappointed when the world refuses to affirm how great they know they are. <laughs> uh, this generation has the highest likelihood of having unmet expectations with respect to their careers and the lowest levels of satisfaction with their careers at the stage they are at. All right, this is a world that is, has taken expectations and just put it way up here. So, all right, and this is why I'm sharing this stuff with you because whether you recognize it, you got lead poisoning from hanging around this. So whether you've ever realized it or not that you got these expectations, you want to you see how you're going to figure them out? We're going we're gonna to pump up small group fellowship. You're going to take your lead poisoning and you're going to say, hey, man, that sounds really good, man. So, so relationship look, look like what? People going to be involved in my life? How? And it's going to affect me? Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. I'm expecting something incredible. And you're going to go to these groups and, you, and guess what you're going to find out? You're in a small group meeting of remedial humanity. People who are like, moth dust and get crushed on a daily basis. People just like you. And I guarantee you what they're going to do is disappoint you and fail to meet your expectations. Whoever said for you to set your expectations so stinking high? Right? Hey, we just, just did some of this with our young marrieds. If you're young married, you're familiar with one of the resources we encouraged you in was what did you expect a book on marriage. You know why that book got written? Because this generation has developed expectations for humanity that are unbiblical, just not informed well. So I just want to prepare us. I want to prepare us for not traveling into these groups, sitting in them for two or three meetings with expectations that are way up here and just being disappointed. Um, You're a person, they're a person. That's what you're going to experience and live in. A couple more thoughts here. Not only do millennials lack the kind of empathy that allows them to feel concerned for others, but they also have trouble even intellectually understanding others' points of view. What they do understand is how to turn themselves into brands with friend and follower tallies that serve as sales figures. 
People are inflating themselves like balloons on Facebook. When everyone is telling you about their vacations, parties, and promotions, you start to embellish your own life to keep up. If you do this well enough on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter, you can become a micro-celebrity. And there are, right? I mean, you guys probably know who they are. They've, you know, they've got a gazillion followers, and they're just posting all kinds of stuff about their life, etc. He goes on and says, they want constant approval. They have a massive fear of missing out. They're not going to church, even though they believe in God, because they don't identify with big institutions, right? When you get over-individualized, you don't identify with what's happening in a bigger group, right? What's happening here? Is it significant or is it just significant when it shows up in what's happening here? Do you understand how challenging this will be to turn around and say, okay, now abandon you for the sake of them. Whether you recognize it or not, that call is going to bump into something inside of us that wants to go, but wait a minute, what's in it for me? How rewarding will this be for me? What opportunity is there for me in this? One third of adults under 30, the highest percentage ever, are religiously unaffiliated. They are cool and reserved and not all that passionate. They are informed but inactive. They love their phones, but hate talking on them. <laughs> right, now, that's, that's not just young people, is it? All right, the older you get, go, go check your minutes on your phone over the last few years. and Watch how your minutes are doing this. Text me more, but you don't have too much to say. All right, here's the challenge. We're going to stand, and we're going to promote biblical fellowship. We're living in this land, this American suburbanite land, with these kinds of values thinking, activities, ways of life. And we're going to herald the call that Scripture has for us to relate to one another in a particular way. As we see it in Scripture, the term fellowship is what we see. Now, we are intending, as we start up in the fall again, to restructure a bit of the groups, to do some things a little bit differently, to change scheduling aspects, to offer some different elements of thought and gathering. And part of that is taking into account the landscape of where we live. We are having to do small groups today, not when we started in 1999. We started doing small groups in 1999. Does everybody recognize life is not the same as it was in 1999? Today, it's quite different. We still want people to participate and we still want people who have these challenges that I just went through and many more to be able to join their lives together in meaningful fellowship. Now, I, I know we may be tempted to say, well, well, okay, well, are, are we accommodating ourselves to the culture then? Are, are, are we compromising as a church to adjust what we're doing? Uh, listen, can I just encourage you to to seek to answer that question wisely and not just zealously, right? The zealous part wants to say, you know, hey, hey, the church is to have nothing to do with the world. Um, That's a big, bold statement, and it's actually not even accurate. You and I live in this world. This world is defining a lot about who we are. You know, we don't want to stand like we're, you know, no, we're Christians. The world, the world doesn't say anything to me. Okay. What language do you speak? <clears throat> English. Who taught you that? Your culture did. How many of you would love to own a home or you do own a home? Who taught you that? Your culture did. Home ownership. You know, because all over the world, home ownership ain't the thing it is here in America. But for us, it's an important value. Right? It's not a bad thing, but it does create some complications in your life because once you own that thing, you've got to care for it, you've got to pay for it. So it does affect your, your lifestyle and the way you do things. Uh, anybody here living in a farm setting? Anybody live on a farm? Uh, no. You understand, years ago, though, most everybody lived on a farm. What happened? Culture shifted. Culture shifted from an agrarian culture with its simplicity, its limited number of people, its predictable activities on a daily basis, to an industrial revolution 
took place. And all of a sudden, the culture of the world changed, and people began to live differently. Urbanization took place. People moved from far out, separated from one another, to right on top of each other. Then suburbanization took place, and they moved away from right on top of each other to living in the suburbs, which created a different challenge. Different forms of ideas now. It used to be years and years and years ago, just the way things were, dad woke up, children went to work with him. They were old enough. He worked within proximity. You could maybe see him with binoculars at some point during the day. Came back home, raised his kids, lived with his family, dealt with his wife, all out of that setting. Then the Industrial Revolution came, and dad started traveling from where they lived to over here where the plant was. Suburbanization. Dads get up in the morning, maybe before kids are even out of bed, and they're gone all day long, and they come back home again. Right? Careful how you interact with that. Is that all wrong? Should we not be doing that? Because when we open the Bible, it's an agrarian society. And they were farming and planting stuff. And they were doing things together. So does that make this wrong? Or does it just make a fact of life that is already in us? Right? Technologically, your technology is enabling a lifestyle. Enabling a lifestyle that maybe you and I are having a hard time keeping up with. Well, what's the remedy to that? Do you want to get rid of your car? Right? You want to go Amish? I'm not sure why the Amish allow themselves to have horses and carriages. I think that's illegal for an Amish. You really want to get simple, get rid of them too. Force yourself to walk everywhere. You'll really simplify your life. You won't go to a bunch of places, you know? (laughs) So you have more time on your hand, more time to read the Bible, more time to interact with your family. But if you buy a car, all right, well, now you got to pay for the car, pay for gas, insurance, and that car can take you somewhere in a few minutes. Uh, And if you have the internet... The internet can take the whole world into your home in an instant. And if you have an iPhone, the iPhone can take everybody you know and put them in your pocket. Do you understand how more complicated your life is than somebody who's waking up to go count chicken eggs? Is this all wrong? And I think it's a little bit like what Hudson Taylor had to do when he set foot in China. And he had to recognize, right, what's going on in these people's lives. Here's the rest of his thought. He says, we have to deal with the people whose prejudices in favor of their own customs and habits are the growth of centuries and millenniums. Nor are their preferences ill-founded. They're not necessarily wrong. But why need such a foreign aspect be given to Christianity, right? We're imposing these cultural ideas that we get from a different culture in a different time. The word of God does not require it nor, I conceive, would reason justify it. It is not their denationalization, but their Christianization that we seek. Right? And for us, living in modern America, it's not the demodernization of the church that we seek. It's the fulfillment of the gospel in the midst of the setting that we find ourselves living in. Now, here's what's clear. If you want to write anything down, write this down. The principle of fellowship is clear in scripture. The principle of fellowship is clear in scripture. The frequency, the practice, the structure is not. How often, when, where, small group, no small group, how many small groups, how big is too small a group, how small is too small a group. None of those things get discussed in the Bible. What's clear is for every Christian, God has called us into fellowship with others. That's the only thing clear here. We'd be very careful about how we take our next step with with that thing being clear, but the details of which are not clear. Do do you realize the danger that when we take things the Bible speaks of in principle and we turn them into over-specifics, we we create stumbling blocks for ourselves and for others. That was an excellent book that we were hoping to use in the marriage setting by Tim and Kathy Keller. It says, while the principle... In this case, distinct gender roles is being discussed here. While the principle is clear that the husband is to be the servant leader and have ultimate responsibility and authority in the family, the Bible gives almost no details about how that is expressed in concrete behavior. Should wives never work outside the home? Should wives never create culture or be scientists? Should husbands never wash clothes or clean the house? Well, I've been looking for that verse everywhere. One of you men who are a better student than me, have you found it yet? Uh, traditionally minded people are tempted to nod yes 
to these questions until it is pointed out that nowhere does the Bible say such things. It gives no such specific directions at all. Why would this be? Well, consider that the Bible was written for all centuries and all cultures. If it had written rules for the roles of wife and husband in ancient agrarian cultures, they would be hard to apply today. But scripture doesn't do that. All right. We're about to relaunch small group ministry. We we have some ideas that we're going to put in place to aim at us being able to fulfill the biblical call to fellowship. To do so in an American suburb, living in the time frame in which we live with all that I just described going on in our lives. It is causing us to adjust some things, how we, do, how we approach them, the frequency of things, installing some breaks in activity. We've created more of an approach in the fall where, where you will sign up for a group and we, and we want to encourage every person to do that. You'll sign up for a group and you're going to sprint with that group from early September until right before Thanksgiving. And then you're going to take a break from right around Thanksgiving all the way through the mid part of January. And then we'll start up again. Now, why do we install a big break like that? Well, because there are other legitimate things in your life that require your attention and your ministry and your giving of yourself in other places besides your group. And those things aren't wrong. They're God's call as well in your life. So we want to figure out a way to try and make the ministry of fellowship work for everybody who's in this setting as best it can. And when we were planning churches years ago in remote locations of Mexico, you, you couldn't slap Lakeview Christian Center's schedule on top of this church. We'd devote the church and we'd have the day of devotion in the building and the people would come. You couldn't just say, hey, here's how we do it at Lakeview Christian Center in New Orleans. Here's how you guys can do it. You know why you couldn't do that? None of them own cars. And some of them lived hours away from the church. So when they went to create fellowship meetings, they created these day-long events on Sunday. They came together. They had a lot of teaching. They ate together. They spent the whole day together on Sunday. Why? Because that family right there walked for three hours this morning to get to church. Don't expect them to come back for the small group meeting on Tuesday night, all right? Uh, Just doesn't work that way. And there's a lot about what we're going to do that's going to work for some in ways that's not going to work for others. Please don't hear us saying, and I'm going to go through some of the details of this in the future, but please don't don't hear us saying that we, we expect everybody in this church to sign up for a small group and to be involved in a small group in exactly the same way. Now, I think perhaps it maybe has sounded that way in the past. I'm going to qualify and clarify some of that this time. Uh, It would be unreasonable, it would be unfair, it would be unkind to stare at the guy who just graduated college who still lives at home and tell him to be involved in fellowship, transfer that same involvement to the dad who travels for his job, has four children, uh, wife works as well, or wife homeschools, or wife is caring for sick relatives, and to look at that guy and say, you guys' fellowship needs to look exactly the same, buddy, because it's fellowship, and it's an absolute. No, fellowship is an absolute. How those two people walk it out may not look exactly the same way. It just can't. There are seasons in your life where you've, you know, some of you guys have been involved heroically in small groups. Suddenly life changed. Things became different. Illness came. Uh, complications in life came. Job change occurred. And, and, and you couldn't be involved the way you were for a, a season of life. Uh, we want to, in some ways, create room for that just being the reality of our lives. We want every person to think about fellowship being a priority. But it's not going to look the same for everybody here. Limited number of meetings in the fall. I think as we look at the the calendar, there's about six group meetings in the fall. Six. Sprint. Six meetings. A couple other meetings we'll throw in, but six meetings. We hope you can make every one of them, but but maybe, maybe you can only make five of them, maybe four of them. 
but to make it a priority appropriately and to make your life to, to treasure and value fellowship. Right? That's what we're after. And I want to be careful as we move forward as to how we think about our lives. Listen, this is a complicated group of folks here. All of us are living through the complications of our lives. We need to learn how to care for one another and encourage one another into fellowship while we live in that setting. And that's what we're going to seek to do. So next week, our hope is to open up registration for small groups. And we'll do that for a few weeks because it actually takes us about three weeks to get everybody here on a Sunday. So we will open it up next week. And for the next three weeks, we'll begin to register groups. You can have a variety of groups to pick from. Um, I just, I will encourage you in this. If you have been a person who's been benefiting from the way in which we've been doing covenant groups, you have good, strong relationships, effective fellowship is taking place in your life, that we're really not encouraging you to make some kind of major adjustment just for the sake of something being new. This is working in your life. Just let it keep working. Uh, for some who have never been involved in a group, we hope that you're going to change that. We hope you're going to look at your life and look at these opportunities and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to sprint in the fall. I'm going to reevaluate this. I'm going to sprint in the fall and see how this does and see the impact that it has and see what God's called me to. But our hope is that every person will consider, in spite of the busyness of our lives, we will consider how God has called us into fellowship. All right? Let's pray together. Father, what an amazing story our lives contain. And we who were once your enemies have become your family, your children. Lord, we have, a, we have a few years to live that out upon this earth, and you have calling for us. And it involves things like Bible study and reading and prayer and worship, serving evangelism. And it involves fellowship with one another. And, and Lord, would you give us a fresh ability to live in that category? Fresh insights, unique, as diverse as this meeting is, as diverse as a, a single mom or a young person still living at home? Or can you meet us in the days ahead? And can you draw us into this place of fellowship? Let it have the impact in us and through us that you've called for it to have. We were anticipating seeing you in greater ways as we relate to one another in biblical friendship. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, bless you guys.